This is Dialogue, a podcast of the 100-year-old Lenten preaching series recorded live at Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis. I am Scott Walters, rector here at Calvary, and my guests tonight are the Reverend Winnie Varghese and Dr. Brian McLaren. Winnie is a beloved preacher, teacher, and writer. She has been a leading voice on issues including mass incarceration, systemic racism, gender, sexuality, and LGBTQ issues, immigration, many others. She currently serves as rector of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Atlanta. Prior to St. Luke's, Winnie served as priest for ministry and program at Trinity Church Wall Street and at rector at, of St. Luke's in the Bowery, a great funky parish down there in the Bowery in New York as well. She was chaplain at Columbia University in UCLA. Spent some of her childhood in India, where her parents immigrated from to the United States. Brian McLaren's an author, speaker, activist, public theologian. He's also a core faculty member of the Living School and a podcaster with Learning How to See, which are part of the Center for Action and Contemplation. His newest books are Faith After Doubts and Do I Stay Christian? There are many other books before these, including A Generous Orthodoxy. I'm, I'm told he was also an English teacher at one point as well. Welcome to you both. It's so good to be with you in conversation here tonight. We're happy to be here. We're going to start with maybe some ideas about what's broken in the world. Um, Brian preached today, Winnie will preach tomorrow. I don't know you really well, but I know you well enough that both of you are truthful about what's broken in the world, and you're also hopeful people that think even Christian people might have something to offer uh, to a broken world. So I wonder how you'd start to talk about what you see as broken or breaking in this world, and um, maybe some signs of some mending as well. Can we start there? Is there anything that's not broken in the world right now? I started to make a list, and it's it's almost everything, isn't it? Yeah. Like, oh, oh my God. Uh, my my family's from India, and so I watch Indian politics just because I care about my family, and it's a it's like a mirror of what's happening here, mm. except in a place that you think would you know that, that has socialist values, that is a majority poor nation. And the same kind of ginned up bigotry and nationalism that is for one small group of people and calling that the economic victory of the nation, you know, on, on the backs of 95% of the population. It's, it's almost easier for me to see there because I'm not, because it's far, mm -hmm. but it's not different. The way, that, the way that's implemented, who's terrorized, who's afraid, who's hungry, who's discriminated against, how the discrimination works it seems, well, you'll know, I don't know. There, is there a reason that it's so similar all, all over the world? It's literally, it's gender, hunger, work, yeah. poverty, um, discrimination, caste discrimination, race discrimination. What, why is that? Mm. I think uh, Scott knows that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, when you said that, Winnie, I thought uh, of everybody should go home tonight and look up on online Watch Bob Dylan playing his song, Everything's Broken. <laughs> it's, it would be a good sort of meditative experience to sit with Bob for a few minutes. Yeah, I mean, it really is spooky how similar it is. I feel like we're in this giant psychological experiment. For the first time in history, we've linked all of our brains through these things. And for the first time in history, we have generations who are knowing that we could blow each ourselves up with nuclear weapons. Yeah. And for the first generations in history, we are beginning to understand what we're doing to the global environment. And <clears throat> for the first time in history, we've run out of land. Like, 
human beings have spread across the earth and we used to solve our problems. One group would solve their problems by stealing the land of some other group. And, and of course, that's still a rather popular thing to do in, among certain <laughs> uh, countries. But I just feel like we're at this point where stress levels go up. And I don't mean to sound scary, but I think part of why we're seeing this happen is we thought democracy would solve all of our problems. And we're finding out that democracy alone Democracy solves some problems, but there are some problems democracy hasn't figured out how to solve yet. Mm. And the kind of sort of beginner, second-grade democracy that we have ha isn't fortified to, to deal mm. with this set of problems. I mean, and part of that challenge, right, because I keep comparing it to India, is that we haven't fully lived into, we, have, we haven't realized our democracy. Yes. So many yeah. disenfranchised people, right? Yeah. Mm. And in fact, if, yeah, if we just think, yeah, democracy wasn't originally started to give everyone a voice. It was started to give just men a voice and just white mm -hmm. men a voice and just mm -hmm. white landowning men a voice. And so, yeah, we're running out of ramp, a runway yeah. to, to get democracy working the way it, it, it needs to work. And right at a time where the richest, the people with the most wealth and power just have gotten new tools at their disposal to consolidate their wealth and power. Imagine being the richest person in the world and owning one of the most powerful social media platforms in the world. If that were ever to happen, we'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> or one of the richest and least, one of the people with the least conscience and sense of decency were to own a huge cable news station that was only worried about profits and uh, careless about the truth. So. You put those together, and yeah, that's some pretty serious broken stuff. And if you saw them watching the Super Bowl together, that would really creep you out. Oh, my gosh. It's, I couldn't <laughs> no, imagine It would that. never happen. Yeah. 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 You know, uh, yeah, okay, we're, okay, we've lowered expectations for a chipper <laughs> conversation yeah. tonight, but it's, it's really helpful to start yeah. here and be truthful <clears throat> about this. Brian, you were talking today about risk. Yeah. And the, and the way that we, we've lost this sense of accepting that there's a certain amount of risk in human relationship and human life, and that when we displace it either in the direction of despair or a Pollyanna hopefulness, we displace this important tension that we have in our relationships. And um, just hearing you all talk in this, we've, we're, we're talking about something that's gone wrong in our relationships mm -hmm. with one another, with the earth, with, with yes. people, with trust. I just wonder if there's anything in that that starts to yeah. put some texture on the, what we're talking about in a way that we might say, how would we start to rebuild some trust, some relationships in a world that's grown hardened and cynical? Mm -hmm. I'm it. I don't trust the, 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 the systems you've described, mm -hmm. what seems to be rewarded, Yes. what kind of behavior, what kind of, of fear. Thoughts about putting a little more flesh on that in a way that we could start to say, how might faithful people be part of the healing? So I wonder, because I'm like this, I wonder if our need to find a solution is part of, like, quickly, is part of the problem. Oh, yeah. You know, I think all, I mean, part of what's happening in our country, um, actually, and I would, get, again, compare this to India, is that the, the people that have not had voice, population-wise, are emerging. Mm -hmm. um, that there, there's a, there is a very clear struggle for who who will be in power what what power who will have power and here it's that our demographically we're shifting radically right um and I, I feel like so my gut is let's 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 get organized we know a new story of us let's let's enact it but the truth is we don't 
Yeah. I mean, just the fact of diversity is not a story of us. Um, and I feel like movements are asking us to, you know, not to not have urgency around crisis, because there's plenty of crisis right now, real lives, real water, like, you know, real environment. But to maybe assume that we've got a lot to learn to figure out what that story of us is, and it's going to take some time. Mm. And our, our quick, and I, you know, I, I think we're, we're living out a reaction to the civil rights movement, which was like, you know, the, the moment, like something hit after the civil war, like the, you know, the, mm. the kind of, the kind of timeline we're looking at is so long. And I don't, I don't think that's for apathy, but I think, I actually think um, COVID times kind of brought me to this, that this time of mending community and being together and thinking about belonging and meaning, if you had told me church was where people go to make meaning, when people did tell me that 10 years ago, it's like, we can do a lot better than that. That's so boring, just so dull. And now I would say, yeah, actually, yes, let's do that. Let's yeah. come together because we, we don't know who we are. We know who we are with each other and it's different than who we've been. And I, I, again, I'd say, of course, we need to be involved in all kinds of things. And I think this is going to take a lot of time and be really painful and shift the ground under us. Mm. Like, I don't think it's just bringing some more people along. I, wow. I think we have yes. to fundamentally change. And all the folks you were talking about know that. Yeah, when you say that, Winnie, I, 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 the quote, a little quote from Wendell Berry came to mind. What is, I won't get this exactly right, but he said something like, when we realize we don't know what to do, Maybe that's when our work really begins. And yeah. and if yeah. if one of our sort of cardinal sins of this modern era is arrogance, um, it would be nice if we could all say, yeah, we're really arrogant, we need to change. But it tends to be when you're arrogant, the only way you lose your arrogance is by humiliation <laughs> and failure. And yeah. And I just think to myself, these last... 20 years have been a really, for this country, have been a really great opportunity to be humiliated. Uh, and we have a whole lot of people who are fighting the humbling that comes from humiliation and failure. Um, but it's probably doing its work. And, and as you say, you, in a certain sense, you can't take a shortcut to get the easy version of humility. Any of us who are in recovery have, understand that idea of hitting bottom, you really have to reach a place where you feel your powerlessness and uh, that it's not working. And, and, and when you said that, Winnie, about story, about finding a story, meaning and a story, those of us in the Christian faith, this is one of our struggles because we have this incredible repository of stories in the Bible but we inherited a way of interpreting the Bible that gave us a certain version of the story that is, super, in my opinion, is super highly problematized right now. So the part of the struggle, this is one of the broken things, but it's something also that maybe is in the process of being healed the only way it can, is that when people start to feel that Christian version, that version of the Christian story you're telling doesn't work or it makes things worse, then they just want to throw out Christianity. Um, or they double down on the old story. And we, I think we need more people to say, no, there's a new story here for us to rediscover in our own resources. Yeah. yeah. 
I love that, and I love pairing that with Winnie. So this, this question around urgency really is catching my attention. And Christians who are, have been bemoaning the demise of Christendom for decades who are used to just being, oh, it's the last Christian's going to show up at the last church in 20 years, and then we're all going to be done. Um, there's a weird relationship with urgency. Mm-hmm. Brian, you care a lot about climate. We can't seem to muster an urgency to kind of act now. And I'm also thinking about Tyree Nichols in Memphis, where there was in a moment an urgency that was so infected and misspent that it led to the death of a a person by the people. Uh, People feeling an urgency to do justice in this moment that that was a distorted vision of it. And so um, you've got me thinking about urgency and how we actually as a church maybe take time. You're asking us to step back. We may have to step back and discern, form community. What does that look like? How do we balance what's urgent and has to happen today and what we actually have to step back? Because we might do the wrong thing really hard. Yeah. Tyree Nichols is a great example of this. I wanted to talk a little bit about it tomorrow, which with a lot of humility, because I'm not from here, but but I'm from Atlanta. And, yeah. and I think there's slow work. So for those of us that don't come from evangelical traditions, um, I would, you know, some of us come from traditions of, you know, and many of you probably like, like we know how to turn our Bible upside down, you know, and flip it around and look at it in different ways. And you know, reading the creation story in this moment, you know, the ways that we like this. So, so, so I know how to do that. But we we just had to read the creation story for something, mm-hmm. and all of us kind of landed in the same spot around noticing ecology in it mm-hmm. and noticing gender mm-hmm. in it, and you know, and Ha Adam again, mm-hmm. and. Um, that wasn't the thing that was popping up at, you know, at a different time. Yeah. And so I think we are people that have every tool we need, and there's some slow, yeah. repeat work for us to do. And, um, you know, the, the great movements in history have never been led by a majority, ever. Mm-hmm. It was always a small minority. And it's we tell our history mm-hmm. in ways in, in this country that make us, and maybe it's just that it's how power works, um, make it feel impossible to actually make any change. And the truth is, it was always a small group of people that yeah. people thought were out of their minds yeah. that made change. And I, policing is one of those things, right? So in Atlanta, they're about to build a massive police training center. In and of itself, everybody should be trained for their job, so that's neutral. But it's in a forest, and Atlanta is a city of forests, and this is preserved forest. So they're going to knock down the thing they love the most. They can agree they love the most in that city. Um, to build this training center because we have crime. That's the logic of all of it. Um, and it's, it seems so clear to me, this, this is the kind of moment you want to interrupt and assume, and like, mm. let this take some time. Mm. You know, let us, let, if we're going to be a just city, and I want to assume that everyone working on this wants a just and safe city, mm-hmm. we can't quickly solve the problems of 400 years by building a new building real fast. I can kind of guarantee we're going to make them worse, right? But to go in as community leaders that say, we don't actually have the solution. Well, we're pretty sure that's not the solution. And then mm. could we take some time because we'd like to actually build a solution? It's a different way to think about organizing than I'm used to, which is we, we go in knowing exactly what we want. Yeah. And then we fight till we get it. And in the world of things that are humiliating, feeling mm. lost in that landscape feels, as a 50-year-old, feels feels very humiliating. Mm-hmm. I think at 25, I'd know exactly what I thought about yes. this. I don't know. <laughs> Even like at 45, I might have. And I don't mean that wisdom comes with years. I think I mean more that the landscape has changed yes. really radically mm-hmm. in a way that I think is also very exciting. Maybe it means there's more possibility of change. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah, did I hear that um, 
that some of the people who participated in the protests about that to preserve that forest are being charged with domestic terrorism. Yes. And that that policy was put in into like that is this president. This president has made yeah. that possible. Wow. Yeah. It's a scary thing when protest gets called domestic terrorism. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In these Atlanta. Are, these are kids kid yeah, Atlanta, the the city of, of the civil rights movement. Yeah. Proud of that about themselves. Yeah. Too busy to to fight, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, to your point, right, that, 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 that movement is to highlight the destruction of the forest. Yeah. That should catalyze that city like nothing else across racial lines. Yeah. Um, and it, it has, and something has happened to us over the last couple of years, yeah. all of us, I think, in the country. It, it's not. It's not doing that. Um, right. There's fear of, I mean, being called a terrorist is yeah. terrifying. And someone died out there. Yeah. And there's no, there are no, no cameras were on, so... So that's so disheartening because how many, how many stories have we told in the last years where we said, well, we are divided and we are estranged, but at least we can gather around this. Yeah. It's a virus. <laughs> it's a, name the thing that seems so self-evident. It's a park. It's the thing we could. Um, that's, really, that's really disheartening and, and difficult to think about how we start to rebuild trust. I mean, how does, I'll make it even harder. Yep. Let's say institutional religion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is there any place in this landscape that even institutions, what are the pitfalls and the possibilities? Is it relevant? I mean, should we, is it going to be a different kind of organization that needs to meet this moment? Or do we have something to offer? So I'd really like to hear what you, you two would say about that. I wonder what experience you're having. I'm guessing it's like mine. Um, people are, we are baptizing adults at the Easter Vigil who have no religious background, none. And they're getting baptized at the Vigil so they can be confirmed because they want in. So it's not like it's a thousand people, but for an Episcopal, and we're a pretty big Episcopal church, like we're a church mm -hmm. like you all. I was a chaplain for 10 years. I've not seen this number of people, young people show up and say that this tradition has, this has meaning. They've come in for all kinds of reasons, no background at all. And they're not captivated by our liturgy. They don't think, you know, they're, they're putting up with it. There's, some, <laughs> there's something else going on. You know, it's not, they're not like, oh, this is Shakespearean. That's not what's happening. This isn't aesthetic. Like they are, they want to be a part of that community. There's something happening in that room that they want to be a part of and are willing to do these bizarre things with us to be a part of, right? We're going to, if you could stay up really late on a Saturday, we've got some water and... Fire. <laughs> yeah, and some fire. Yeah, we're going to light a fire. We don't really know how. Um, <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> But what's yeah. the thing? If it's not the liturgy, if it's yeah. not the things we've been saying, we want there's I mean, an ancient groundedness. And I don't want to say it's not completely. Yeah, 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 I mean, I'm, I don't, I'm being no. a little bit, but it's not the it's not the usual thing we say draws people to yeah. us. I don't think they. Um, though I think they're fine within all those frameworks. I think they are looking for communities talking about the real things, and they are trying to. They are reorganizing their lives from scratch to for belonging and meaning. Um, which is associated with all kinds of values, including social justice values, but interpersonal values and how you deal with one another and communities, you know, that believe in true things. And mm -hmm. you're having to go look and find that because the world is social media and they were isolated in their apartments by themselves for two years. I find that they're going out to find that and, and, and we're getting people that are coming from evangelical communities who are really mm -hmm. disillusioned by that tradition. And again, aren't saying, oh, but if only there was incense, I'd be an evangelical. Like, they're not coming for those things. Um, they're really serious Christians, and they yeah. want to be in a community that takes that seriously. 
And so I, I, you know, they told us we were going to die, I think, in the 60s as well. Yeah. I think there's this, there's, for certain people, it doesn't have to be for everyone, for certain people, I think these institutions make a lot of sense, and I think they always will. And I think there's a certain capacity for social movement, social change that comes from these institutions and of conversation in the civic realm that these kinds of institutions have that, other, that free church traditions don't. And mm-hmm. for me, it's a very, very high value. Mm-hmm. What's happening? Where you, what's happening here? Well, I agree with. Yeah, we we see it too. We had. I met one parishioner who's who came during COVID online, and the first time I met him in the flesh was when the bishop laid hands on him and confirmed. It was r- really interesting yeah. encounter that. But the the piece I might add to that too is I think I have a lot of places where I can go align with people who are for the things in the world I'm for and can fix it in the ways I know it needs to be fixed. Yeah. But I'm experiencing people coming saying, I think I'm part of what's broken, and I think I'm confused, and I hurt, and, I've, and I fail, and I'd like to be, I'm putting words in my mouth, but it's part of why I'm a Christian. It's like, I have a feeling like we have to be in this so that we can grow and be challenged and changed because we're part of, what the systemic, conversation about systemic racism for me just falls right into ancient, ancient conversations about the way sin doesn't just move through my mind and choices, but and what I want, and, and how I'm in relationship. And so those I find real freshness, and people are coming for a humble conversations about how might we be better? How might yeah. we heal our relationships with the neighbors right over there? I think that's a piece of it, too. That's absolutely ancient tradition of confession. Yeah. You know, I, I, as, as probably most of you all know, I grew up evangelical, which is really just another name for fundamentalist. And... I am such a big believer in liturgy for so many reasons. I attend an Episcopal church. I love the Episcopal church. But if I could make a plea to institutions, and this is where I see this happening already, but it would be that the folks who are liturgical and the folks who want to keep every word the same and believe everything is just right the way it is, let them do that at some service But some of those other folks who appreciate the value of liturgy, I wish that we could, like, give everybody an ordination who wants it to become the Thomas Cranmers of the 21st century, Mm -hmm. to say, how can we say what needs to be said for our survival in these times in the beautiful and poetic and poignant and pointed language that it needs? And... And if we can get people for 50 minutes or 60 minutes or 74 minutes, if how can we maximize that time as a spiritual formation and movement building experience? Because to me, we're in such matters of survival now. Mm-hmm. And the good news is, so I attend a little Episcopal church in Southwest Florida. I travel a lot, so I'm probably not there you know, I, if I'm there 20 Sundays a year, it's, it's you know, a, a lot over these last 15 years. And I've watched that happen in my congregation. I don't know how it is in different dioceses, but in, in our diocese, they have kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy when it comes to liturgy uh, innovation. <laughs> um, so everyone knows not to ask permission because you won't be granted it. But so what's happening is one of the priests at our parish, she just goes and finds great stuff, and it's out there, and brings it in. And you can feel almost a groan in the room when people say the words that are dying to be said in their 
hearts. Like, like mm. just as an example, growing up evangelical, when I first became part of an Episcopal community and we said the confession of sin, I, I memorized it. I, I sin a lot, so I need all the you know, help I can get. But I, I memorized that beautiful confession of sin. But now I realize that that confession of sin is numbing for so many people. It's their way to not think about any sins they actually commit, you know? And, and I think to myself, and that's not to mean, I love Thomas Cranmer's words and thought, word, and deed by what we have done, what we have left undone is very comprehensive. It just doesn't make anybody think of racism. And it just doesn't make anybody think of hoarding wealth. And it, it, it's beautiful poetic words that make sure that we don't think about the things that actually some part of us wants to think about, you know. So we have this priest who's retired, and she works at our congregation, and she works for free, so she doesn't care if she gets fired. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, and and she told me this, you know. She 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 just she, she's she she's not afraid to push the limit. And, and you can just feel the groan of people saying, I know this is going to make so-and-so mad, but we need to say it anyway. And yeah. that's the kind of space that I think is happening a lot out there. I'll tell you one other thing. I don't know if we have any Methodists in the room, but a lot of you all know that the Methodists are going through what Episcopalians went through however many years, years ago. ago. And... Um, uh, and I think most Episcopal congregations would say that it was painful to have that rupture years ago, but that in a certain sense, people are able to get on with the work they really want to do, with the people they really want to do that work with. And United Methodists are as big in the United States as all other mainline Protestants put together. Um, so they're a big deal. And if... 60 or 70 or 80 percent of them stay together and after this rupture they're able to sort of dust themselves off because you know you have to do a little bit of grieving and licking some wounds and catching up on sleep and uh, all that but once they're ready i mean they could get a fresh start sure. sure and that could be a big deal so in a certain sense even when you see things breaking the yeah. breaking might be a, a very necessary thing that you would never wish on anybody, but once it happens, you say, well, look, now that it's broken, let's make the best of it yeah. and see what can happen. Stephanie Spellers last year had a great, has a great thing about the, the breaking of the vase, uh, for yeah. the perfume for Jesus. Yes. It's like, what precious thing will we break yeah. to yes. allow the next thing to happen? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, the institution piece is interesting in probably lots of levels. To me, it's, I, I came out of an evangelical tradition, non-denominational, and so I was partly drawn to the guardrails, even though I'm not preternaturally drawn to guardrails. <laughs> I'm like, question the rules and whatnot. But the liturgy itself, the fact that I can't decide what to say next, yes. opened something up into me for, for prayer. At the same time, I think what you're saying is exactly right, that mm -hmm. how is there this tension between Scott and Winnie just don't wing it, and yet within those parameters, yes. there needs to be room yes. for the people to move, for the spirit to move. Um, I'll give you an example that just happened here that may be too fresh. I don't know if it's a good idea to talk about it, but here we are. <laughs> uh, we, had, we had John Meacham on Ash Wednesday here in the church, and John is an Episcopalian, and when he agreed to come, he, he said, I'd like to preach on Ash Wednesday. 
usually that's not where we start our Lenten preaching series because Ash Wednesday is a different kind of service, right? You need to know what you're in for if you're coming for Ash Wednesday. To be told you're going, you're, di- you're dead, you're going to die. <laughs> um, wonderful service. Had a lot of people here. We had a lot of Jewish brothers and sisters here that are deeply connected to this place and were hurt to hear about the, the hypocrites in the, in the synagogue without context. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I was hurt. Micah Greenstein, Rabbi here, who filled this place last Friday as a dear, as a dear friend, and we went back and forth that night and talked about, mm-hmm. we didn't get to choose that gospel. Mm-hmm. This is our liturgy and our bringing it into this and bringing it into, into conflict with people I didn't want to hurt. Yes. Now, there was some grace in that, but it sure hurt getting there and having conversations to say, yeah. how could we keep this alive? How could yeah. we still tell that story again? And also acknowledge that it's been weaponized against, yeah. against people. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I, I, you're not, I'm not supposed to be talking this much. But, but that tension between the guardrails and the freedom, yeah. you know, how do you all, how do you navigate that? How do you, yeah. you've articulated how you've seen it done. Do you... Have you seen moments of genius and grace? And so, one, I was a college chaplain for ten years, which the whole job is to make it up, right? Nobody, yeah. you know. That, so that I come from my family's from very liturgical traditions, but the the denomination, like the Orthodox, become Martha, you know, like there's different movements because the Bible is introduced. Like the reforms come because text is is brought into the local language. So I probably hold it a little more lightly than I should. And I was the rector of St. Mark's in the Bowery. Yeah. <laughs> and Saint Mar- so our old prayer book is from the 20s, right? Our current prayer book is from the 70s. So St. Mark's in the Bowery, and, and there were prayer book studies. So every decade, volumes of these things would come out. And we were really serious, frankly, about liturgy as a, as a church. And so you would get new archaeological work and historical work in these prayer book studies. Some of you probably have the files in your house. I mean, they're amazing, right? And they would be the, the things we put together to make the new prayer book. And we don't fund that anymore in the Episcopal Church. So in all our lightening up the systems and being nimble rubbish, I think, um, we have, like, who's going to do it if we don't do it, right? Mm-hmm. If, we don't, if we don't have people working on that. So we don't have it anymore. So we hope we have scholars that are doing it. We cross our fingers. We don't support them really in doing it. Um, but so St. Mark's gets bored between 1928 and 1970, whatever, very St. Mark's to get bored. <laughs> and they produced a prayer book. Like, they didn't just write some liturgies. They made a book. I learned about this. I didn't know, um, because a priest who had been in California forever was from Ireland, and in the, Angl- in the Church of Ireland, the Anglican Church in Ireland, the Protestant Church, he had grown up using the St. Mark's prayer book. So I had seen one Eucharistic prayer and a post-communion prayer, but he had the whole prayer book. It's stunning, definitely of its time. I think it was the 50s. I mean, you, you could hear the time. But 50s. it has, I think it was the 50s. Could have been a little bit later, but not much. It wasn't the 70s. And though they kept making liturgy, so there's plenty of liturgy that kept happening, but one of the St. Mark's masses, one of them, at the end of the Eucharistic prayer, at the post-communion prayer, so this vision of the kingdom had this line, that I will never forget, laughter in the hallways as one as, as like one of the signs of the kingdom. Mm. So, do, But do you hear that? Like it brings it into a public school, a tenement, public housing. It brings it into modern architecture, yes. a hallway. Yes. Laughter in the hallways. You can hear yes. it, right? Yes. Um, I, I, I think we should, I'm with you, I think we should write, we should be writing liturgy all the time. The reason we have good liturgy is because we write it all the time, historically. That's how you get it. And it is particular for every moment, you know, and then we get caught in how we change it. 
right? And um, you, know, you go to the Church of England, frankly, you go to the mothership, and they're doing a ton of different things on Sunday morning. <laughs> um, so I, you know, we we had a bishop, so Bishop, I um, can't remember who it was, who was the rector of Trinity way back in the day, who said it would be our formalism, our attachment to this, the formality of the liturgy that would be the defining feature of Episcopal, Episcopalians, not our outspokenness. You know, think of all the things you'd want to define <laughs> us as a denomination. And what's so I, I'm reading, I think it was Bishop Hobart reading it, thinking, what a horrible thing to say about people. And then thinking, oh, wait, we are like that, aren't we? <laughs> Me too. Me too. Like formalism. It's mm-hmm. not tradition. It's yeah. not that it's ancient. It's not anything. It's, it's the formality of the liturgy. And we have been told since the last prayer book that it is the book that mm-hmm. unites us. Mm-hmm. That, it, that, that is not how. There's there have been there there's been a breadth to how we think about that across the communion and um, in our history that we've lost in this church. We are we are in a fight to the end on the book, mm. and I think it's too bad because we should be thinking as creatively as we can about the words we need right now. And we have the poets and we have the theologians and we've got the musicians. Yeah. You know, the Presbyterian shouldn't have a better hymnal than us. That's not right. You know, <laughs> like we so we we've, we've got the resources. And I but I think frankly I think we're tired of fighting. So part of what happens when you have the big fight yeah, yeah. Um, is it's so exhausting yes. to go after each other. And, and while we feel like we're having this conversation internally, the yeah. world is breaking. Yeah. You know, so what, what are we doing? You know, and, yeah. but, but I want a line like laughter in the hallways in my post-communion yeah. prayer. You know? Yeah. Well, well, where are you seeing that? That's the 50s. Everyone, where are we seeing God? Well, like what you've described, everyone I know yeah. is messing around with yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's at least one service on Sunday morning, at least one on Sunday, if not more, where we are trying to be as expansive as possible. I don't want anyone to walk in and th- it used to just be gender inclusion, but now in this moment of um, of really understanding what it means and, and hearing the voices of people who say they're not binary, who are trans, like that that's a whole other level of looking at our language uh, and looking at race and color and how that happens in language. And we... And, and not to mention, like, how, who we think God is and what God's characteristics are. So you can't. I, I don't live in a world where I can just read the prayer book. Yeah. I mean, I, I do it. But I mean, that I can do that. And like you, because I'll have to say sorry later, right? <laughs> um, and I, I, I don't know a bishop that doesn't say, in the House of Bishops, they talk about this, that where they see vitality in parishes are in parishes that are playing mm-hmm. and creative and trying to speak um, words they want their children to hear and be yes. formed by. Hmm. Oh, beautiful. That's fantastic. And even speaking to a broader culture, it's not reductive in censorship, it's expansive. That very word to say that the idea of taking in more perspectives can expand what we're doing, what we're saying, not looking over our shoulders lest we offend. It's actually taking in this positive yeah. Aspect of God well, is I, a different. Just to speak, yeah. The, then and, you know what you just said about Ash Wednesday. So there's been this critique in our church of kind of the political correctness of changing language and you know in the text and the in the Bible, for, especially for Holy Week readings. Mm-hmm. And this is where we just don't know our history and the power of liturgy, the real yeah. power of liturgy to cause harm. Mm-hmm. Right, Holy Week mm-hmm. when those readings were read. Right is when pogroms started historically in Europe, and we don't know this history. Like I feel like you should you should hear that once and be ready to change it all. Yes. <laughs> like think about what just you know think about it, and that didn't happen to us. Right, we've heard it 
once we understand it and we're saying, oh, but we like our translation, we've lost our minds. Like, what, what are we talking about? Could I do something sort of fun about uh, what we're talking about? Let's do fun uh, stuff, uh, yeah. Could, well, I mean, not that this wasn't <laughs> yes, yes, fun. Yes. This was really fun. But um, <clears throat> we had talked that we might want to bring a poem to share oh, yeah. uh, tonight. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I was thinking about that this might be a poem that maybe I could share, so I made sure I had it on my computer. But I'm just thinking this would really be fun in light of what we just talked about. Y'all have uh, Padraig Tuma coming. Uh, yeah. And of course, Padraig is a wonderful poet. And I, so, I can't remember. I read an article once where they said Padraig, that in some ways, poetry is the prayer of agnostics, <laughs> which oh, nice. I thought was interesting. Yeah. But there is a kind of religious language that says to people, if you want to say this with us, you're lying. Um, so either be quiet or pretend, you know, or lie. But there's another kind of poetry that goes out and finds people where they are with laughter in the hallways. And and when I first heard Thomas Cranmer, you know, that's, yeah. Yeah. that's what I felt I was being brought in. So this is a poem that is a secular poem. In fact, it has a naughty word in it that I'm going to edit just out of respect. <laughs> oh, Omid Safi was here. He said all of them last week. <clears throat> oh, okay. Well, you're good. Then I will, I'll, I'll go, keep it I, Go, Okay, so um, you don't have to say it, I'll say it. But um, it's uh, from sort of a, a hippie from the 1960s named Diane de Prima. Some of you might know her amazing poetry. And this is called Life Chant. And it is a poem that was read in sort of beat poetry settings, you know. Uh, it is one of the most beautiful liturgical experiences I ever have. And there's a way to read it liturgically. So the first part of this, your line that you say is, may it continue. Mm -hmm. So if we get this going right, I'll do my line, you do your line, and we just let it go. You, so we'll give it a try. It'll be a little bit awkward, but we'll get in the rhythm. And just both say it and, and observe what happens to you, as you say. Maybe nothing, but... Something good happens for me. Okay, here it is. Cacophony of small birds at dawn. Sticky monkey flowers on bare brown hills. Bitter taste of early miners' lettuce. Music on city streets in the summer nights. Kids laughing on roofs, on stoops, on the beach, in the snow. Triumphal shout of the newborn. Deep silence of great rainforests. Fine austerity of jungle peoples. Rolling fuck of great whales in turquoise ocean. Clumsy splash of pelican in smooth bays. Astonished human eyeball squinting through eons at astonished nebula who squint back, May it continue. clean snow on the mountain, May it continue. fierce eyes clear of light of the aged, right of birth and naming, right of instruction, right of passage, love in the morning, love in the noon sun, Lo love in the evening among the crickets, Long tales by fire, by window, in fog, in dust, on the mesa. The night music. 
grunt of mating hippo, giraffe, foreplay for snow leopard. May it continue. Screeching of cats on the backyard fence. And it goes on from there. But uh, I just find when I hear that and when I read that, when I imagine it being said in a beautiful cathedral or in a beat poet coffee shop in 1962, it just feels magic to me. Yeah. Works both places. Yeah. You should do that at your vigil, isn't it? Yeah, at the vigil, yeah. It's like that. And could I just say something about yeah. that? So, you know, I... I I'm a Christian. I love God. I love Jesus. I love the whole thing, right? But there's something that happens when people pray that puts all of the responsibility on God. Do this. Make this happen. Change this. Fix this. And when a bunch of people say, may it continue, it's like, instead of saying, God, will you fix this? It's us saying, I'm putting my voice into this too. Now, I think prayer should be that. I think that's what prayer really is. Prayer is not telling God what's to do. It's sort of saying, by my voice being in this, I'm putting my skin in the game too. But boy, it would be nice to get to a place where that happened. So, Amen. Yeah. Amen. We did a litany at, at St. Mark's. I don't know where, it, I'm sure it came from somewhere else, but it was for All Saints Day. And it was, and it was all the saints, like we did all the historic saints, but also all your people. We did all saints and all souls together and our neighborhood people. And, and the response was presente. Mm-hmm. which just puts it right back in your body. And so yeah. we would just read some names, and it might have Cesar Chavez, and it might have Gregory of Nyssa. And then it was very, <laughs> and, and, then, and it just went on and on. And, and then people invoking their families. Mm. Um, and that, that, as you're saying, the power of liturgy, right? Mm. Yeah. That's the work of the people, yeah. And if it can be an old, old word that reconnects me to someone centuries ago and brings it into that communion of saints, community of saints, yeah. Yeah. but... Yeah, to bring the natural world, to bring the actual neighbors outside our doors in Memphis or in yeah. downstairs into the liturgy has got to be our task. Mm. This is wonderful to talk to you all. Thank you both. Let's say thank you. For you. Dialogue is a podcast of Calvary's Lenten preaching series, a 100-year-old tradition that invites wise and inspiring speakers into our pulpit during the season of Lent. Dialogue is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about the home of Dialogue in the Lenten Preaching Series, Calvary Episcopal Church is an eclectic bunch of Christian people. We don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them. And that God calls us into a beloved community marked by unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to Dialogue at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.